Hi, and welcome to No Place Like It, a podcast on fictional homes. I'm your host, Talia Olick, and together we'll be exploring the ins and outs of imagined living spaces. Due to unforeseen circumstances, I was unable to have the murder mystery episode prepared by today, so this week we'll be revisiting early 2000s New York. That's right, we have just been spotted on Fifth Avenue again, but this time there's a bit more to learn about Blair Waldorf's penthouse and all the other homes in Gossip Girl. The first house we see in the pilot episode is the penthouse where Blair Waldorf lives with her mother Eleanor at 1136 Fifth Avenue. Eleanor Waldorf is a fashion designer whose brand is associated with understated elegance and her home reflects this as well and its muted colors and subtle prints. The elevator opens into a foyer with black and white checked flooring and a round wood table always has a fresh bouquet to greet visitors with an inviting floral scent. To one's left, there is a white marble staircase that literally rounds out the room. The staircase serves to create a grand entrance for Blair, as well as a platform from which to look over the pool seatings below. It's a dramatic showcase for fashion selections, and also a position of authority for a commander such as one finds in Blair and Eleanor. Some scenes feature Blair looking over the little balcony area at the top of the stairs, and these can be likened to photos of dictators looking out over their own balconies at their oppressed subjects. Blair herself is at one point called a dictator of taste, so this commanding presence is definitely one to be compared to history's most powerful figures. I'll add here that I consider Blair Waldorf to be the only real hero in the show, so I consider her authoritative presence to be beneficial and not tyrannical. Moving past all of that, The walls are a cream color with gray flowers rising from a beautiful, creamy sage wainscot. I can't express just how much I love a wainscot, so let me just say, I believe any place that has wainscoting is immediately 10,000 times more tasteful than all the other garbage houses that don't have wainscoting. And that's the least dramatic way I can put it. The right of the foyer is the living room, where the furniture appears to change on a frequent basis. There are occasionally chaise longs for people to recline and survey the chaos happening before them. Other times, it is a light gray couch with a shiny black grand piano. I don't know where this grand piano goes when it's not in the room, but I'm guessing it's the rich people version of owning a guitar that you don't actually play and that's only there for decoration. Through the living room, we see the dining room with this long rectangular table surrounded by white and gray upholstered armchairs. It's less dining room and more war room with 
two sets of double doors that lock from the outside so the occupants can reach an agreement, as shown in an episode where the housekeeper, Dorwalda, locks Blair in with a frenemy to force them to fix their relationship. So far, we've seen the left and right sides of the foyer, and now it's time to proceed straight through to the kitchen. We see the Waldorf kitchen in only a few episodes, but all are memorable for their sweet and touching moments. The first time we see the kitchen, we understand Blair associates it with her father, with their Thanksgiving tradition of baking pies together. In season one, episode nine, the story switches between Thanksgiving 2006 and Thanksgiving 2007. In 2006, Blair's parents, Eleanor and Harold, are still together, and they're all having Thanksgiving as a family, with Blair baking pie with her father. In 2007, Eleanor and Harold are separated, and Blair discovers her father is not coming for Thanksgiving. She is upset and deals with her feelings in the kitchen, which reinforces for the viewer the connection between the room and her father when she discovers the real reason he is not coming for Thanksgiving. Blair returns to the kitchen and sees her mother in a rare moment of vulnerability. The second time we see the kitchen is Thanksgiving 2008, when Eleanor's boyfriend, Cyrus Rose, is eating some pie. The kitchen shifts from Harold's domain to Cyrus's, which is reinforced later in the episode when Harold conveys his approval of Cyrus being Blair's stepfather. Once Cyrus is established as part of the Waldorf family, we see the kitchen for the third time when he is making the food for the Passover Seder in Season 2, Episode 21. The kitchen is now Cyrus's place, and he is bringing his traditions and quirks into the family and directing them into a new dynamic. The fourth time we see the kitchen is during Blair's 20th birthday party in season four, episode seven, and it's featured in two scenes. The first shows a couple of cousins arguing and Blair herself watches from the entrance but doesn't actually go into the kitchen. Later, we see her in the kitchen talking to her mother and Eleanor gives her some advice on being a grown woman. It's clear to us now that Blair's presence in the kitchen is always associated with a parental figure, even if that parent is not physically there or if they're not there for cooking or eating. Another thing about the kitchen is we only ever see it in episodes of celebrations, whether it's Thanksgiving, Passover, or Blair's birthday party. It may not be the family gathering place that the Humphreys kitchen is, but it is a space for celebration, vulnerability, and touching parent-child moments. So far, we've covered the downstairs part of the penthouse, and now it's time to go upstairs. There are two sets of stairs, the marble staircase we saw earlier, and a set of stairs from the kitchen to the upper floors. When I first saw the second staircase, I thought it was for servants. I know, 
I know it's a horrible assumption to make of the extremely rich, and I should know better. However, the one time we see characters use it in the show is during season two, episode twenty-one, when we see family photos on the walls, indicating that this may be for private personal use and not intended as a service access to the upstairs. In the first few episodes, Blair's bedroom is mostly gray and red, but in season one, episode six. Her bedroom gets a makeover, and it becomes the bedroom we see for the rest of the show. Blair's bedroom is painted French blue with a soft white for the trim that is echoed in the curtains and lampshades. The bed has a black wood headboard with ornate carvings and details, and the silk bedding is usually either soft gray or blush, and nearly always a bit rumpled. Echoing Blair's chaotic personality, the nightstands are simple, and a rectangular mirror stands to the side so Blair can assess her outfits. There are actually three mirrors in her bedroom. All three are featured in scenes where Blair is most reflective, both literally as she looks at herself and figuratively as she thinks about her life and the choices she has to make. In Blair's bedroom, there is a photo of Audrey Hepburn wearing a Givenchy hat, a popular picture taken by the photographer Cecil Beaton. There is a poetic parallel in this photo choice, as Blair is the muse for her mother's fashion brand, while Audrey was famously Givenchy's muse. In fact, Blair herself aspires to be a modern-day Audrey Hepburn, and her dreams are straight out of. Hepburn's films, only with herself in the role that Audrey played. On the wall in Blair's bedroom is a blue and white painting of a young woman in 18th-century dress. The pose and hair. Are also very much 18th-century styles. Many online say the young woman is Marie Antoinette, which is a pretty good guess, given that the show's developer Stephanie Savage considers Marie Antoinette one of her style icons. However, it's clear whether it actually is the royal, as it does not resemble any of the paintings Marie Antoinette actually sat for, or any of the poses in these paintings. In fact. There is no such painting of an 18th-century woman available for purchase, and believe me, I have looked. To the right of the bed, a door opens into Blair's closet, which we only see a handful of times during the show. Surprisingly, it's quite a small room when considering the multitude of outfits we see her wear. She does give away some clothes over the course of six seasons, so I'm sure she has to do some clearing out. To make sure the room doesn't get overcrowded. At the opposite end of her bedroom, there is a door to the bathroom. One thing I want to point out is we see Blair's bathroom more than a few times throughout the show's run. This is rather unique, since we rarely see bathrooms on screen, and when we do, they usually feature toilet humor. However, this isn't the case with Blair's bathroom. And here we see Blair crying after she has a bulimia relapse, as well as a couple pregnancy tests thrown out 
after they've given joy or dread to the ones who took them. We also see Blair trying to de-stress by taking a bath and drinking champagne. In reality, the bathroom is the setting for many personal moments, both good and bad. And it's really interesting to see these play out on screen when we most often hear about them off screen. Now that we've explored the Waldorf penthouse, we'll head to 500 East 55th Street, greet the incredibly loyal and friendly doorman Vanya, and takes elevator up to the Vanderwoodson penthouse. The Vanderwoodson living room is decorated very much like an art gallery, cream and neutral tones accented with bright paintings and the occasional pop of color. It's not unlike the Vanderwoodson family's existence, which is accented with scandal and the occasional shocking revelation. Who committed perjury and sent an innocent man to prison? What is hidden? and safe that can threaten to implode a marriage is the little details that stand out. Most notably is the Richard Phillips spectrum painting over the stairs. It's a bright pop of color that draws the eye every time it's in a scene, and it serves as an important plot point in a later season, but I've said enough about that already, so let's move on to the rest of the penthouse. The kitchen is small. Clearly not a priority to Lily, mother of the Vanderwoodsons. It's a galley kitchen with a blue wall and a stainless steel fridge. The sink and countertop face out to the living room, making it easier for cater waiters to retrieve food from the kitchen. The dining room is also small, but the round table within symbolizes Lily's desire for family closeness, or at least the appearance of family closeness. Although we occasionally get a glimpse into Lily's office upstairs, the only other room we really get to see is Serena's bedroom. Serena Vanderwoodson's bedroom is mainly decorated in gold to reinforce her image as the golden girl. Her bedside tables are gold. The love scene is a seafoam green color with gold flowers embroidered. The throw pillows are gold, gold flowers in the curtains. The wall is a gold color with an installation of white panels and gold circles, in case viewers weren't getting enough of the gold. When I say gold though, I don't mean glittery or metallic gold, although the throw pillows are metallic. Rather, it's a muted and plain gold, not quite brown, not quite yellow. The lack of luster in it signifies that maybe being the golden girl isn't all glitz and glamour. At least not for Serena. For everyone else, gold is gold, whether it is shiny or not. Speaking of gold, we have been looking at homes of extremely rich people, and now we should take a look at the home of some not-so-rich people. Let's find a cab or a bus and head out to Brooklyn, where Rufus, Dan, and Jenny Humphrey live. Much is said on the show about the Humphreys being poor, especially compared to their extremely rich counterparts on the Upper East Side. 
But one glance at their loft tells us the parents have chosen to put their money towards making their home as comfortable as possible. The loft, at its core, appears more like a warehouse, with concrete floors, exposed brick walls, and a garage door separating the kids' rooms. It has the potential to be a cold and decidedly unhomey space, but the introduction of warm colors and soft textiles makes it an inviting and livable space. There were warm browns, reds, yellows, and oranges all around with bits of light blue and teal colors. It's not terribly fancy, but it is a homey place for the occupants, which makes it a safe place for them when the rich folks in the Upper East Side are making them feel unwelcome in the city. In the Humphreys' Brooklyn loft, many references are made to its not being not a good place to keep secrets. It doesn't have very many walls, and therefore not many secrets are able to stay hidden. It's an open concept with a storage unit on wheels dividing the main area between the living room and the dining room. On the living room side, the storage unit contains vinyl records, most likely from the Humphrey father's younger days as a traveling musician. A handful of guitars stand near the records, ready to be picked up at the slightest flash of inspiration. Next to the guitars, a desk and chair provide a space for Rufus to write his lyrics, sort through his bells and other such administrative matters. It's a mini office section which flows well into the living room area. The living room contains a light blue velvet tufted couch, a brown velvet armchair, and a leather chair all set up around a brown floral rug. On the dining room side, the storage unit is just a blackboard with a cluttered collection of photos. In the dining room is what Dan refers to as an oddly large kitchen table with a comfortable bed restaurant booth style benches, as well as a couple sets of white chairs. The Humphreys do use this area a lot, but they are more often seen sitting on bar stools at the kitchen counter. The earlier seasons see a lot of activity in the Humphrey kitchen, mainly due to Rufus making a ton of waffles. One question has to be asked though, if Rufus makes a lot of waffles which require milk and butter then where is the refrigerator? Not once in the show's six seasons do we see a fridge in the Humphrey kitchen. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe the Humphreys only buy eggs on the days they need them and use the whole carton that day. Maybe they don't care about proper food handling and always have food poisoning. Is that why the mom moved away before the start of the show? When she's sick of everyone being sick all the time? These are very important questions, and yet they remain unanswered over 10 years after the finale. What's clear throughout the show's run is that stability of home is central to the character's development. With a few exceptions, none of the characters stay in one limited space for long. Houses get seized by the FBI, teenagers run away, marriages join people in one home, and divorce drives them to other houses, the list goes on. When the show starts, the Vanderwoodsids are living in the Palace Hotel while their actual home is being renovated. Serena tells her mother, this is not life, this is a hotel.
She sees it as a temporary existence, not real life. This contrasts heavily with Chuck Bass's hotel residency. The Bass family owns many hotels, which meant that Chuck grew up in a hotel instead of a house. In the first couple seasons, he lives in the Palace Hotel, which his father owns, and after season three, he lives in the Empire Hotel, which he owns himself. A rather endearing moment in season four shows Chuck talking to a woman who also grew up in a hotel. She asks him about his hiding spot, and he shows her where it is corner of the kitchen and she shares the hers with the same hiding place. It's a brief conversation but one that completely contradicts Serena's statement about a hotel not being alive since for Chuck and other children of hotel owners the hotel is their life. In Chuck's bedroom at the Empire we see pinstripe charcoal pillows atop a tanned bedspread with an extremely subtle brown paisley pattern. I say extremely because there were many times I was unsure and had to zoom in on several pictures and pause it on screen a few times to get a good look at it. One aspect of Chuck Bass's penthouse I find interesting is that the main area and second bedroom are all colorful walls and bright furniture with black and white artwork. But in Chuck's bedroom, the walls and furniture are subtle or neutral tones with a couple colorful paintings. These are stark and dramatic contrasts which echo Chuck's starkly dramatic personality. The common area in the penthouse suite features gray walls and orange furniture, a black pool table with blue felt rather than the usual green of pool tables, and as I mentioned before, black and white artwork and naturally a bar with much alcohol. On Chuck's orange sofa, the throw pillows are black and white checked, like the flooring in Blair Waldorf's foyer. While we never see Chuck Bass cook or consume anything other than alcohol, he does have a kitchen with red-orange cupboards and black cookware. Again, it is very dramatic and dark, like Chuck himself. There are a lot of pros and cons to owning the hotel you live in. Chuck is able to keep tabs on the Empire and its staff, but it also means he has to be ready to drop whatever he's doing when the front desk calls to deal with the situation. He can see all that gets caught on security cameras, but that also means he has access to a great many secrets, which I'm sure he loves, but it's not so great for the people he blackmails. Interestingly, a number of scenes in Chuck's penthouse are filmed with a Dutch angle, a camera angle intended to convey unease to the viewer and or to stir unease in the viewer, both of which tell us that living in a hotel suite is not all room service and continental breakfast. There's a dark side to the life, especially if you're Chuck Bass.
In two weeks, we should be back to our previously scheduled tour of visiting murder mystery locations. The script and research references for today's episode are available at patreon.com slash noplacelikeit. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, rate, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use for podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.